hppodcraft.com. That is not that which is too late. Straight, 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 the one thing you should never ever do. So in the tale of Inspector Legrasse, um, our narrator is going to look through that second half of the Cthulhu cult Trapper Keeper right. uh, that uh, he has gotten in this box from his his great uncle. And in this section, it makes clear why the professor had gotten so interested when Wilcox right. mentioned Cthulhu and Relay. The earlier experience had come in 1908, 17 years before, when the American Archaeological Society held its annual meeting in St. Louis. Professor Angel, as befitted one of his authority and attainments, had had a prominent part in all the deliberations and was one of the first to be approached by the several outsiders who took advantage of the convocation to offer questions for correct answering and problems for expert solution. The chief of these outsiders, and in a short time the focus of interest for the entire meeting, was a commonplace-looking middle-aged man who had traveled all the way from New Orleans for certain special information unobtainable from any local source. His name was John Raymond Legrasse, and he was by profession an inspector of police. With him he bore the subject of his visit, a grotesque, repulsive, and apparently very ancient stone statuette whose origin he was at a loss to determine. The statuette, idol, fetish, or whatever it was, had been captured some months before in the wooded swamps south of New Orleans during a raid on a supposed voodoo meeting, and so singular and hideous were the rites connected with it the police could not but realize that they had stumbled on a dark cult totally unknown to them. So what we have here is uh, this man has walked into a, a archaeological meeting, a society group together, a little party, a soiree, if you will. And uh, he says, hey, I got this statue. Can any of you fellas figure out what it is or where it's from? And everybody, all of the archaeologists at the meeting, they immediately kind of go nuts and gaga over this thing. It's quite a sight, the, the statuette that, that Lagrasse has recovered from the swamp cult. It represented a monster of vaguely anthropoid outline, but with an octopus-like head whose face was a mass of feelers, a scaly, rubbery-looking body, 
prodigious claws on hind and forefeet and long, narrow wings behind. This thing, which seemed instinct with a fearsome and unnatural malignancy, was of a somewhat bloated corpulence and squatted evilly on a rectangular block or pedestal covered with undecipherable characters. The tips of the wings touched the back edge of the block. The seat occupied the center, whilst the long, curved claws of the doubled-up crouching hind legs gripped the front edge and extended a quarter of the way down toward the bottom of the pedestal. The cephalopod head was bent forward so that the ends of the facial feelers brushed the backs of huge forepaws which clasped the croucher's elevated knees. The aspect of the hole was abnormally lifelike and the more subtly fearful because its source was so totally unknown. It seems thousands of years old, but it's like nothing they've seen before. They can't place the stone that it's carved right. out they of. They can't even identify what it's made out of. Yeah. Exactly. And the, uh, the carvings on it uh, are in some language that seems ancient, but they're not exactly sure what it is. It's a pretty terrifying description and very detailed. Yeah. yeah. And interpreted by zillions of people mm-hmm. ever since in, in numerous, uh, numerous ways. Oh, yeah. Um, there, was an actual, there was an actual sculptor, a French sculptor named Henry Clues, uh, C-L-E-W-S. And um, I don't know whether Lovecraft had seen his work or not, but some of Clues' statues are these really weird, almost alien-looking... You just have to go take a look at some of them because they're really freaky, and mm-hmm. and and some of them they almost match this. I mean, they they don't match it in in the details. It's not of a of a octopus headed dragon like right, right. thing, but but there's something about but that it. that that sense of product of some ancient culture and some alien language. I mean, they they really do have a sort of otherworldly quality to them, and, and and they're really worth taking a look at. It is such a wild picture that he paints the first time that you hear of this thing, though, you know, because yeah. it's a it's got these octopoid undersea features, but the thing's got wings. It's a little different than your run-of-the-mill sea monster. And then also, I think one thing that really struck me the first time I heard of this creature was its corpulence. You yeah. know, it's sort of flabbiness. When I think of monsters, I usually think of big, muscular, strong, powerful yeah. things. And just the, the idea that it's, you know, this kind of flabby, gross, malicious, corpulent sort of thing. It makes it, I don't know, it's more creepy. Yeah. It, it's more it makes it more corrupt, almost yeah. more, more abhorrent, you know. Uh, as a side note, Lovecraft did do a sketch of Cthulhu and kind of in this position. Right. Uh-huh. We'll put that up on our show notes, a link to that. Oh, so you yeah, can cool. See, Lovecraft wasn't much of an illustrator. No, uh, but it's it's kind of interesting to see something that he actually drew. Yeah, it, it's definitely an insight into how he pictured Cthulhu himself. And s- since it is something that's so hard to picture because it combines so many mutually exclusive categories into yeah. one one entity. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the world over has now been uh, is now possessing the small little stuffed animal Cthulhu. Oh, see yeah, them yeah. Everywhere. The plushies, man, yeah. they are everywhere. They're everywhere. You can, plushy slippers, plushy this, plushy that. Yeah. In all different costumes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It it's was... funny how I think that the monster Cthulhu has really penetrated pop culture and so few mm-hmm. people actually probably even know what the heck it is or where it came from or anything like that. I remember when I saw Dr. Zoiberg on, uh, oh, yeah. on Futurama yeah. that I was like, it's Cthulhu. <laughs> it totally is. Cthulhu's brother or something. <laughs> his goofy brother. Yeah, his cousin. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have wings, but still. But, and of course, everybody, as we've said, in, in this uh, 1908 Archaeological Society meeting, they see this. They go nuts. They can't place the stone. They can't place the writing on this sculpture. But there is one man among them who does recognize right. it. Right. Professor Webb. That's right. Professor uh, William Channing Webb, who's an anthropology professor at Princeton. And he's an explorer also of no slight note, they say. 
It's right. been all around the world. And and when he sees this thing, he starts to tell his own story. Right. And it's almost like there's this fourth like Easter right. egg story exactly. in the story. Right. Then it takes place 48 years before, which right. would make it about 1860, right. where he, he had been exploring Greenland and Iceland looking for runic inscriptions. So he goes on to relate what, what happened to him. Basically, he runs into a degenerate Eskimo. Yeah, there's this Eskimo cult that he comes across. The other Eskimo, they don't like this. They, right. Even among the, the Eskimo tribes, that what he knows by reputation is that this Eskimo cult is bloodthirsty, they're repulsive, they sacrifice humans, and they say their religion has come down through the eons. Right. And he knows that they worship this supreme elder devil or Tornasuk, is that right? Right. Webb did speak with a specific Eskimo, and it was this sort of wizard priest. Yeah. Right, 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 right. The had. high priest, sort of, the, of their cult. Right. Who yeah. spoke in, you know, a language that Webb, who, who knew a thing or two about Eskimo languages, recognized was not an Eskimo language. Exactly. And from this priest, he got sort of a phonetic right. copy of what uh, the, the thing was, this elder devil god. And you can guess what, what that yeah. is. The cult, they had this this fetish, this sculpture around which they had danced when the aurora could be seen. And it was this crude bas-relief of stone that, that resembled this statue right. that Legrasse has shown up with. So he recognized right. it. Right. So Ch- William, experience. you know, Professor Webb's spider sense is all tingling because now here it is 48 years later. And he's seeing yet another version of this same scary thing that mm-hmm. he saw on the Greenland coast, you know, in 1860. Here this... New Orleans police inspector shows up with the tale of having just busted up a cult ritual in New Orleans, yeah. and he's got a very similar statue and has heard a very similar words uttered by these voodoo cultists in New Orleans. Exactly. Yes. It's a really exciting moment. It's yeah. almost like when you're at a party and you run into another Lovecraft fan. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? you know, in this in this next part, we find out exactly what it is that's, uh, that's being said. Well, that's that great moment of realization, because he's saying, well, the rituals of this Eskimo cult, they said this. And then Legrasse says, well, in New Orleans, they said this. And it turns out that the Eskimo wizards and the swamp priests, they were all saying the same thing. Which was? Anybody want to try and puzzle through it? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, That's how I say it. I don't know how you say it. <laughs> but then, but Legrasse knows what it actually means. Right. That's the one thing that Webb was never able to figure out is what... What does that mean in plain English words? And Legrasse has the answer to that question. In his house at Relay, dead Cthulhu waits, dreaming. So 48 years he waited to hear those, yeah. uh, hear that translation. And, and it's not a very comforting discovery. No. No, it's kind of it's creepy. Yeah. Yeah, I, if, if it didn't have those weird words in there, I mean, if you were like, in his house in uh, East Moline, Steve lays dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be it wouldn't be that horrifying, would it? I mean, it's sort of the ancient. Uh, but what if it was dead? Steve lays dreaming. Ah! You know? yeah, yeah. See, it's a lot scarier now. Yeah. Well, so once everybody at the archaeology meeting has seen this crazy thing happen, this synthesis of events in Greenland in 1860 with New Orleans in 1908, they ask Lagrasse, "All right, now we'll, you got to lay it on us. Yeah. What happened out in that?" Spot? Right. On November first, 1907. There had come to the New Orleans police a frantic summons from the swamp and lagoon country to the south. The squatters there, mostly primitive but good-natured descendants of Lafitte's men, were in the grip of stark terror from an unknown thing which had stolen upon them in the night. It was voodoo, apparently, but voodoo of a more terrible sort than they had ever known, and some of their women and children had disappeared since the malevolent tom-tom had begun its incessant beating far within the black haunted woods where no dweller ventured. There were insane shouts and harrowing screams, soul-chilling chants and dancing devil flames. And, the frightened messenger added, the people could stand it no more. 
Uh, Jean Lafitte was a pirate in Louisiana and that whole area mm-hmm. down there. But when the War of 1812 hit, he actually ended up helping out America against the British. So that sort of turned him, uh, they kind of made him into a privateer as opposed to a, uh, a pirate. And he kind of became a war hero and renowned in that region. So, and these, these squatters are descended? Descended from him. Well, his crew. His crew. Not, not from him personally. Yeah. Not, no. Well, I'm sure there's a few... There's a few little feet running. The pattern of the, <laughs> the feet. Tiny little feet. Tiny little feet. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, man. <laughs> Legras, and he's got about 20 police, and yeah. they're they're taking this seriously with the squad, as they're saying. So they go out into the, the Louisiana woods around mid-afternoon. With, like, horse-drawn wagons and yeah. stuff. I mean, they are not particularly... It's not a SWAT team going out into no. the swamps. Right. It, it is... You know, it's all the guys that, that Legrasse could muster and a couple of horse-drawn wagons. They have one automobile. They have one, automobile. one automobile, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. they're going out there with torches and clubs. It's the, pretty primitive. They're going through the, the Spanish moss in the mud, and um, they hear they, they eventually do hear these tom-toms beating off in the distance. It's some kind of shrieking, and they see this sort of reddish glare. At some point, the squatters, they aren't going any further. It's like, okay, you know where it is. Go, you yeah. go. Right. <laughs> it looks dangerous. You go first. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and you know what? This chapter is so full of goodness because there's even another little tiny Lovecraft story in the middle of it here in that um, it's not exactly the cult that the people are afraid of. I mean, they're afraid of that, but it's more the region in general. The region now entered by the police was one of traditionally evil repute, substantially unknown and untraversed by white men. There were legends of a hidden lake unglimpsed by mortal sight in which dwelt a huge, formless, white, polypus thing with luminous eyes and squatters whispered that bat-winged devils flew up out of caverns in inner earth to worship it at midnight. They said it had been there before Darberville, before La Salle, before the Indians, and before even the wholesome beasts and birds of the woods. It was nightmare itself, and to see it was to die. But it made men dream, and so they knew enough to keep away. So what is that? Yeah. It's a whole it's a whole other mystery that is that's it. That's all we get. Yeah. It's just touched on. It is but so cool. There's something going on in those Louisiana woods. Yeah. There's like some kind of there's yeah. another like smaller water monster out yeah. there, you know. Yeah, formless so, white polypus thing. That is awesome. With luminous yeah. eyes, it has eyes. Yeah, and there's bat winged devils. And it makes people dream and Ooh. you stay away from it. The cultists appear to be dealing with it directly. I don't know if it's the yeah. beating of the tom-toms that is what brings it to the surface so that they can talk to it or uh, what. But Who knows what those people are doing with those yeah. things. I had completely forgotten about that upon this rereading, yeah. and it creeped yeah, me It was out. very <laughs> creepy. Very creepy. Uh, Diverville was the first French guy to found the, the mouth of the Mississippi River, and La Salle was uh, up in Canada and found it from the north and came down the Mississippi. Uh-huh. And so, basically, those two guys were the ones that sort of claimed that region for France. So when he mentions those names, that's who they are. And, you know, this thing was there before the Indians, and they say even before the regular animals that are in the woods. It's just some ancient. <laughs> Bad stuff. Before uh, the regular animals. <laughs> yeah. So it's ancient, ancient yeah, stuff. That's old. Yeah. That's old, man. Before the plate, before the Earth's crust had shifted and the plates had assumed their current configuration. Uh, it was just out there. Yeah. Labby and white, like Dick Cheney. So and, they, uh, yeah. um. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, but not quite as evil. Not quite as evil. <laughs> so they, uh, uh, 
the, the cops, they plug on through this area and they're hearing the ritual and there's a great bit of description there where they say they're hearing the sounds of animals coming from the vocal cords of men. Yeah. You know, and that's a really disturbing thing. Yeah. One should not be producing the other. Mm. It's a really well felt passage. He really, in a way that he hasn't approached before, digs into that, what, that fear of approaching some kind of terrible bacchanal. I mean, they're coming closer to this cult ritual and it's really chilling the way that he puts all the different elements in place, the reddish mm. glare and the tom-toms and the, the throaty animal calls and we haven't even seen anything yet. right right i just love it so much it's so good it's just amazing it's well written my every little bit of it there's nothing that makes me roll my eyes and in fact it's the exact opposite it's the stuff that just pulls me into the story it's so well done it sounds like just a cacophony of crazy sound although occasionally all of the voices they hear will kind of unite and say those words yeah Love it. Uh, well, they finally they get to the spot and they expose the ritual, and of course, so immediately somebody faints. <laughs> yeah, one of the cops actually, as I recall. One yeah. of the cops goes down. So they they showed up, a guy fainted, and everybody cried out, but the cultists didn't even notice because the party was too crazy. Yeah, void of clothing, this hybrid spawn were braying, bellowing, and writhing about a monstrous ring-shaped bonfire in the center of which, revealed by occasional rifts in the curtain of flame, stood a great granite monolith some eight feet in height, on top of which, incongruous with its diminutiveness, rested the noxious carven statuette. You know, that's a really strange thing. There's this gigantic granite stand for this tiny for, idol, yeah. which is pretty weird, and it's almost like some insane joke that they should be have this mass of people worshipping this very small yeah. thing. Well, and since the, st- the, the idol is made of a stone that that nobody can even recognize. I mean, I th- I think the implication is that it's it's not from Earth. It's not oh, right. earthly stone. Right. So we don't know where it... I mean, I, either it's from Relay or it's from Yugath or it's from somewhere else entirely. And it's the only little relic of that outer mythos goodness that the cultists possess. Yeah, right. So it is the most sacred object. And even though it itself is tiny, it deserves to be placed on this massive granite yeah, monolith right. because it's the most awesome thing in the world. <laughs> One of the cops, a Spaniard named Joseph Galvez, he swears he hears among all the call and response some response from something deep in the woods ah, yes. that might not be one of the cultists. Right. And he swears that he heard the beating of wings right. and that maybe he saw the glimpse of shining eyes and a mountainous white bulk through the trees. So those things that were set up in that little mini story, right. they're attending the ritual yeah, as well. They're so lurking now. in the shadows yeah. just at the uh, outside, at the outskirts of the ritual. And there's other stuff along the outskirts of the ritual too. Dead bodies of the people who have gone missing. Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. How can you miss that? I mean, the, yeah. they're strung up. All yeah. of the people that are missing and, and they're, they're partially... Yeah, they've, they've right. been they've been mutilated in horrific ways, and apparently, you know, ritualistically, and it's you know, it's it's a horrifying sight. Wow, this is hardcore <laughs> stuff, yeah, you know, for really... you know, little little Howie Lovecraft sitting in his room in Providence. I mean, this is a yeah terrifyingly imagined spectacle of of blood and. And depravity and yeah, madness yeah. and fire and crazy people and this is the it, most sanity blasting yeah, uh, monster is, mash of all time. Yeah, Lagrasse finally, you know, he sees this going on and they're totally outnumbered by by these cultists, but they have guns. 
Legrasse is just, you know what? Boom, mm-hmm. we're going in. And he just charges in there. Yeah, they break into the throng. They're fighting and they're brawling and they're shooting. And uh, actually, they do pretty well considering that they're outnumbered. 47 of the nearly 100 celebrants that they say are out there. Yeah. They manage to take into custody. That's a pretty good haul. Actually. Absolutely. These are some good cops. Five of the cultists die in the melee. And uh, Legrasse manages to grab the sculpture. Now, the fact that they got 47 guys rounded up and then he also got the uh, the thing they were worshiping, I, I think that's a pretty good police Yeah, that's very, that's very impressive frankly. So they they grab uh, these folks and they they take them down to the station and uh, they interview all of the prisoners, the cultists. He says that most of them are seamen of of, uh, Negro descent, but they all sort of speak of something that's far older than voodoo or African legend. They worshipped, so they said, the great old ones who lived ages before there were any men and who came to the young world out of the sky. Those old ones were gone now, inside the earth and under the sea. But their dead bodies had told their secrets in dreams to the first men who formed a cult which had never died. This was that cult, and the prisoners said it had always existed and always would exist, hidden in distant wastes and dark places all over the world, until the time when the great priest Cthulhu, from his dark house in the mighty city of Relay under the waters, should rise and bring the earth again beneath his sway. Some day he would call when the stars were ready, and the secret cult would always be waiting to liberate him. Wow. Boom. That's, man, go. that's the it's good laid stuff out. right there. That paragraph right there is really the crux of the whole world that he, he, he yep. makes up. You know? Right. Well, I mean, and that kind of gets elaborated on. I think this is what really catches everybody's imagination. You know, like this part of the story that there are these old gods and then yeah. they're going to come back. And when people talk Lovecraftian, this is what they really are talking about is this stuff. This is the, this is the spark that lights off everybody's imagination and that everybody then goes and runs with and creates this entire fantastic world that yeah. we all get to live in. It's amazing how uh, concisely and well done oh, yeah. this it's paragraph beautiful. is. Yeah, it's a beautifully well-written, condensed, economical paragraph yeah. that describes an entire world. Yeah. yeah. These uh, cultists, they, they won't say much more about it than, than that. <laughs> that concise, nice bit of information yeah. there. But what they hint at is, is pretty scary. I mean, they're saying that men aren't alone. There are monsters out there. They say even that there are others besides Cthulhu, mm-hmm. other old ones. And no man has ever seen any of these. Except in their dreams. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of these prisoners, they're deemed sane enough to be hanged. Yay. They're, really, uh, they're patsies in a way because what they're being hanged for is for these people who were strung up and murdered. Right. But, you know, some of the prisoners say, well, that wasn't us. That was the, the black winged one. Yeah. Right. Um, it's funny. I mean, these people that were hanged, they're like, I'm a patsy. It was the black winged ones. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's Castro from whom they learn most of what they learn, right? That's yeah. right. He's this aged sailor who's been around the world. He's like a, a mix. They call it, he says that it's a, he's a mestiz? mestizo, which is a half white and half Native American. And he says he's talked with undying members of the Cthulhu cult in China. And he lays out a bunch of details about what he's heard. Castro lays out that there are these giant cyclopean stones that are in the the South Pacific and that it's part of maybe some great Uh uh, eternal city. Yeah, right. Well, there are these things that rule the earth and they're great cities and these are remnants of those cities. But the the city, the great city Relay, is still... Is still around. It's being preserved by magic somehow. The old ones, the things that ruled the earth, they were they were gone even way before man showed up on the yeah. scene. But certain rites had uh, preserved. 
them and could revive them when right. the stars are right. And they're so different and alien that they don't even talk. They transmit through telepathy. Yeah, they're very different than you might expect them to be. They're not actual real physical beings as we know it. He says that the great old ones, they had shapes. Obviously, they have some kind of shapes. As there are statues of them. They but must have. they aren't composed of flesh and blood as, as we know it, really. They, they could plunge from world to world. It's almost like a dimensional shifting that they could do. But when the stars were wrong, they couldn't live, but they could also never really die. So they're, they're, they can be formless, they can take all sorts of shape, and we know that while the stars are wrong, they're they're just sort of sleeping. And it's interesting when he says that they could plunge from world to world. In fact, he says, They had indeed come themselves from the stars and brought their images with them. And that is, in my opinion, that means the statue that Lagrasse finds in the swamp is one of those images that they right. brought with them. So it is extraterrestrial. Yeah. Which is why none of the scientists can figure out what, can what it's made identified. Yeah. So this is, I mean, in, in, it's, it, at its real heart, it's almost a science fiction story, too. I mean, these are aliens. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, in some ways, yeah. yeah. They're extraterrestrials, and I love that they, you know, they brought their own little pint-sized versions <laughs> of themselves for people to worship. It's so... <laughs> You know, they were really prepared when they showed up. But that's the thing. When they when they left, though, before there were ever any people around. so Before there were humans. Right, yeah. exactly. But, you know, for all we know, they can see into the future and they have ways of knowing things that we don't know and can't comprehend. Exactly. They are waiting in relay for their resurrection, Castro says, but somebody outside of themselves has to, to help them yeah. do this when the right. stars are right. And there's a chilling passage here. It says, The spells that preserved them intact likewise prevented them from making an initial move. And they could only lie awake in the dark and think whilst uncounted millions of years rolled by. And it creeps me out that they're just laying there thinking. Right, right. <laughs> what I like in the, in the next paragraph is, um, is Castro talks about what, you know, what they're going to get out of it. Well, it's odd because they communicate through thoughts and dreams with, with men. And that's why you know, when the first men came, they, they got these communications and dreams and the men started the first cults and based around these idols. But what you're talking about, it's almost Judeo-Christian in a way because it says that the time of the resurrection of the Great Old Ones will be easy to know. For then mankind would have become as the Great Old Ones, free and wild and beyond good and evil, with laws and morals thrown aside and all men shouting and killing and reveling in joy. Then the liberated Old Ones would teach them new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves, and all the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. I didn't remember this. The great old ones were going to make mankind and society free again. And people could, you know, there'd be no good and evil anymore. There'd be no laws. There'd be no morals. Yeah. And people would learn new ways of just yelling and screaming like primal animals. And then also cool, I know, cool new all... ways of killing things. Freedom comes up a, a quite a lot in there, which is really strange to me. Because I just always, when I think of it, the great old ones just will kill you, you know, and eat you and destroy things. Yeah. What he says that, that the old ones would teach them new ways to shout and kill Chris, like you were saying. I mean, that really surprised me. I didn't remember that at all. Yeah, I just, for some reason, I always just thought the, the old ones, I mean, who knows if they would actually do these things, and maybe these guys are just, right. you know, wishful, wishful thinkers, but, uh, but it's kind of interesting that the cultists think that Cthulhu has a plan for them, you know, yeah. like that he's going to teach them how to do really horrible things, but they'll love it. Well, I think he'll, te he'll teach them by example, and it won't last long. <laughs> right, right. Well, I don't know. I mean, right, I thought right. it was so fun that the liberated old ones would teach them new ways to enjoy themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, have you ever tried a little grenadine in your club soda? You know, also, I want to point out that I think this is the deepest uh, number of levels that the story goes at this point, because this is our, our narrator, Thurston, is telling the story, Angel's story, who's telling Lagrasse's story, right. who's now telling Castro's story. It's crazy. <laughs> so we're four yeah. deep, if not f you know, five, if you want to 
include yourself as a reader. We're in the tiny nesting doll right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, fortunately or, or unfortunately, uh, Relay, it sank and the water cut off the ability of the great old ones to communicate with humans over time. Uh, but the cult, you know, it moved on. So the, the, the dreams that everybody was experiencing this spring means that maybe, you know, mm. there wasn't so much water cutting off this kind of dream right. communication. Anymore. You know, it's funny, too. It, because Relay sank and this sort of dream, dream communication got cut off, I wonder if people in the Cthulhu cult are always questioning, you know, is this real? I mean, you know, sort of like people now when they study the Bible, they'll go, yeah, but did the miracles happen then? Because I'm not seeing any miracles happening today. Whereas mm. there's no sea parting or anything like that. I wonder if the kids in the Cthulhu call, they're like, yeah, I think this is all bullshit. Really. <laughs> I haven't gotten any dreams. Yeah, no. Yeah, because here's the thing is they don't uh, they've got uh, giant white polypus things and black winged creatures, you know, that kind of reinforce their, you know, oh, that's religious true. belief. And at that point, it's not that religious anymore. Good point. Well, you know, and Castro does actually say in this part, uh, or he hints, he says, there are other things that yeah. mankind, you know, that are outside of mankind yeah. on the earth that live now. Yeah. But these great old ones are all, are all slumbering. Yeah. And Castro also says that he thinks the center of the Cthulhu cult is, is the city Irem. Right. Which is the nameless city, right? Yeah, exactly. Or, the city of pillars. Was... And the quote, which we get here from the Necronomicon, is also from uh, the nameless city. That is not dead, which can eternal lie. And with strange eons, even death may die. So that lands. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's so neat that we read that so long ago in the nameless city, and now we get some context of what yeah. it might be. Yeah. How much was Lovecraft thinking about this idea of Cthulhu, you know, when he wrote The Nameless City, and how much of this is him looking at things that he already wrote and go, oh, you know what, this could kind of tie into this new idea that I have. Yeah. So that that is sort of as much as Lagrasse could get out of Castro. And it's a lot of information. It's quite a lot. Yeah. But it also, by implication, is just the tip of the iceberg. Yes. I mean, it's not only is it a lot, it's enough to create an entire world, <laughs> but it's also not nearly everything, right. not by a long shot. It's yeah. just hints of the whole picture. And so we, we come up a level, and, and this tale that Lagrasse is told at this 1908 meeting, right. it obviously leaves an impression right. on everybody there. And when our narrator reads it over in the account of his uncle, he realizes why the dreams of Wilcox would have made his uncle right. so interested that he managed to, even from his dreams, get the words right that, these, right. that, that Lagrasse and, and Webb had agreed upon. But our narrator is still a skeptic even at this point, right. and, and right. he wants to go talk to Wilcox himself. Right, to, because he still thinks, well, somehow Wilcox must have heard about all this and thought he could get something out of my great uncle by you know, faking up a new statue and right. claiming, oh, I've had these dreams. Yeah, exactly. And Wilcox, I mean, it's even like he wants to go reprimand him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so he goes to see Wilcox at the Fleur de Lis building on Thomas Street, which he describes as hideous. He does describe <laughs> it as hideous. And that's Lovecraft's architectural snobbery, I guess. Yeah, it's a pretty cool looking it's a, building. It's, it's a really very cool still building. there, right? It's a very cool building. It is still there. It is still the home of the Providence Art Club. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to get a look inside of it, actually, when we shot there uh, years ago. And it's really cool on the inside, too. Is it? And it's the sort of thing, you know, it's owned by the Providence Art Club, and they 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 allow um, a couple of students, I think a couple of students from the Rhode Island School of Design have studio space there, and then a couple of professional artists, I believe, have studio space there. I don't know if it's still a residence anymore, but it is used as an artist's studio space, and it's really cool. Well, well, we'll put some pictures of it up in the in the show links. Crazy and colorful. Yeah, on the it's this bright yellow, you yeah. know, sort of Tudor-esque, medieval-looking building on, on the street right across from a great old church, and it's it's a really cool building. Our narrator goes in to see Wilcox, who admits him into the studio, and 
he could tell right away, hey, this guy is really talented. And he even says, I think he'll be known as one of the great decadents. Our narrator talks to Wilcox, who says, look, I, I wasn't trying to put one over on your uncle at all. Right. And after their conversation, he's pretty convinced of his sincerity. And it's just the way he talks about his dreams from that time. You could tell he's sort of repulsed and, and frightened by what he experienced. And Wilcox doesn't, doesn't know anything about this New Orleans visit. Wilcox does talk a bit about the geometry of the place that he had dreamt about mm. uh, in this section here and how it doesn't didn't make any sense. In fact, I think he says it was all wrong. And that's been hinted at before, especially with the or with the architect going mad. And it's yeah. also made of slimy green stone, which is very similar to the stone of the statue. Correct. So the visit only convinces him that Wilcox was sincere, but it still doesn't completely convince him that any of this stuff is necessarily significant or true. I mean, he's still a little skeptical at this point. He corroborates things with some of the police in New Orleans, and I think he even speaks with Inspector Legrasse. I think he does, yeah. Castro has been uh, dead for yeah. some time. And he sees the statue. He gets to see it. Yes, he gets to see the statue, and it creeps him out. Still, he's skeptical. Yeah, he's not completely convinced. Because it still seems so fantastical to him. Right. And he thinks that Wilcox, you know, even if he doesn't remember it exactly, he may have just heard it somewhere, right. and then it ended up showing up in his dreams, yeah. and that's really all that Right. You know, which happens all the time. You know, it probably which happened with Lovecraft and the story that, and I think happens with the writers all the time, where they read something at some point and it creeps its way into their fiction. Right. Sure. You know, I mean, that's something that happens. And gets elaborated on. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you, you, know, you latch onto some little apparently insignificant thing, and then in a dream it, it, it spins itself into some elaborate fantasy, and it mm -hmm. seems much more important than it really is, and Thurston is of the opinion that that's all that's going on here. Right. It's okay. like uh, uh, once I had to write a science fiction theme for something, and I, I composed the main theme, and I put it together, and it sounded vaguely familiar to me. Yeah. And I did a little research to find out what it was. It was the theme from Dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> I, had actually, I had actually rewritten the theme from Dynasty. Awesome. Just because I heard it enough when I was a kid. I never watched the show, but it sure. was on in the background. And then when I got the clip and I played the theme, it was almost like pitch perfect. Somehow wow. I'd actually, yeah. Thurston talks about how he thinks about, you know, all this evidence, it seems pretty fantastic, and he calls himself, he's an absolute materialist. My attitude was still one of absolute materialism, as I wish it still were. And as a, a materialist, or materialism is just somebody that, you know, believes only, like, in hard, provable, empirical kind of things. Yeah, stuff you can right. actually touch with your hands. And that there's laws yeah. and rules to the universe, and everything complies to those, role, uh, exactly. those rules. And Lovecraft himself was a materialist. Yeah. But now, even with that skepticism and that materialism, even with his rationalizing, the narrator, though, at the end of the conclusion of this chapter, does begin to suspect something pretty horrible. Well, you have to admit that there's a lot of coincidences mm -hmm. going on, and at some point you have to ask yourself, well, if there are this many coincidences, yeah. are they actually coincidences, or is there something going on? Right. right. And, and one thing that maybe there's not too much reality to all of these different stories, but one thing that he definitely begins to suspect is that his uncle was killed. Yeah. He thinks that it may have been a, a poison needle or something right. along those lines. Well, because it was a um, Negro sailor, and he thinks to himself that, yeah. well, wait, all those guys in Louisiana. Some of them got away. You know, Lagrasse right. arrested a lot of them, but not all of them and some of them got away and now they're they're hunting down the people who were and he says in norway a certain seaman is dead which is going to that's a little uh preview of our next yeah, chapter it leads right. into the next part he concludes that as i've learned a lot and my uncle has died and this guy in norway has died i might even be next because of the information that he has and that's a great way to conclude the second chapter yeah. with, the, with a threat of death hanging over the narrator and by implication all of us <laughs> and by implication all of you listening to this right now so, uh, well, any thoughts on uh, the second part? It's really, of the three parts of the story, it's 
there's lots of great scenes in it. There's lots of great storytelling in it, and there's lots of great mythology building it. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 the foundation for what most of us have come to think of as the entire Cthulhu mythos. It's, Absolutely, it's, it's the cornerstone of so many tales and so many flights of fancy and so much great stuff that came after. I don't know what happened to Lovecraft yeah. when he went from New York to Providence, but he just transformed into this amazing writer. I mean, you know, his stuff was cool before, but this is the stuff that makes me go crazy for Lovecraft. Whole reason I'm doing the show, this story right here. <laughs> yeah, in this section of the story. It's got, I mean, it really does have everything. It's got cults. It's got uh, some action. It's got uh, hints at a greater, yawning, terrible universe. Quotes from the Necronomicon. Oh, yeah. Batwing creatures in the night and strange white gibbering things in the ancient Absolutely. lake. Guys fainting. And in the Call of Cthulhu, the second part is definitely The Empire Strikes Back. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> the, best, it's the best section of the story. I mean, the third part's great. You know, there's lots of cool things that happen in there. But, I mean, the, in my opinion, the best written, the coolest ideas... It's the scariest, you know, yeah. um, and we'll talk about the third part, you know, next week. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just, man, I love it. All right. <laughs> well, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave folks with that for now. Next week, as you said, we're going to be talking about the third part of The Call of Cthulhu. The Madness from the Sea. Uh, that's gonna Ooh. that's gonna give us a little more information about this Norwegian uh, sailor who died. And we're going to come face to face with uh, the, big, the big guy himself. That's right. Oh, to look forward to that. It's going to be insane. Um, <laughs> Andrew, thanks again for joining us. Oh, my uh, pleasure. Thanks again to Reaver for the great music. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Andrew Lehman. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.